The race for president is underway as the GOP candidates squared off in Milwaukee at a big debate. But the frontrunner, former President Trump, was notably absent. Who were the big winners and losers of the evening and what of President Trump? Pollster John McLaughlin joins us. And Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's cause for canonization has been stalled. But new developments may signal some long-awaited progress. Executive Director of the Sheen Foundation, Monsignor Jason Gray, is here with an update. And the Christian community in Armenia continues to be under threat from an Azerbaijani blockade in the region. Is a humanitarian disaster looming? An expert joins us with the latest. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet or an X. I'm at Raymond Arroyo still. Lots to cover. Let's begin. I want to dive right into this first GOP debate on Wednesday and the former president's interview with Tucker Carlson, as well as how the indictments against the president could affect his run. Joining us now, pollster John McLaughlin. John, thank you so much for coming. Uh, at Wednesday night's GOP debate, uh, eight presidential candidates sparred against each other, but without the GOP frontrunner, President Trump there. Here's what former vice president Mike Pence had to say about his ex-boss's absence. I think it was a missed opportunity for President Trump not to be here. John, your thoughts. Did Donald Trump miss an opportunity that might harm his chances for the nomination. I mean, it seems like his absence gave the others a chance to break out unchallenged. Now, we have a, a full disclosure. I work for President Trump, and we've released a poll today where he leads the field where he has 51% of the vote. Uh, Ramaswamy is in second place at 13, and Ron DeSantis has fallen to 9%. Others are, you know, Mike Pence and Nikki Haley are 4%. One on one against. Uh, one-on-one against uh, Ron DeSantis, Trump's beating him 72-28. What's important about that is back in January, Trump led the field 42 to DeSantis' 31. It was, uh, DeSantis and him were close at 52 for Trump and 40 for DeSantis. Now it's, now it's all gone away. And the reason is, is because in this poll today, Donald Trump is beating Joe Biden 47-43. And mm. rather than go into the debate, he's got to prepare to be arraigned. This is the fourth indictment of this of a former U.S. president within five months that is being engineered by a corrupt president, uh, Biden. And, you know, most voters looking at this, they're saying they want to vote on the election. Fifty six percent of all voters want to vote on the election. They don't want the courts to decide only 34 percent. They see a double standard of yeah. justice, 59 percent. So, you know, Donald Trump, these other candidates if they wanted to do something constructive, like with Dr. King, in fact, those of us who remember the civil rights struggle, Dr. King used to yeah. be arrested and all the civil rights leaders would go with him. Here you've got all these Republicans, you know, sniping at Trump. If, if they had any decent poll numbers, Joe Biden would indict them, too. 
I mean, this is a, a hmm. an existential threat to the Republican Party and an existential threat to political opposition and free speech in the United States. You, you know, John, not to interrupt you, but we should tell people, and it's, it's breaking today, uh, Elon Musk has now been sued by the Biden administration, claiming mm-hmm. that his, um, his brand, uh, X, doesn't uh, hire refugees uh, at, a, at a large enough number. So there is something happening with the use of the federal it, government it, and these institutions to target political it, opponents, or at least that's the appearance. I want to talk for a moment about that youngest contender in the race, 38-year-old entrepreneur Vivak Ramaswamy. Um, he received a lot of attention from his opponents last night. He was uh, piled on a number of times for his youth and inexperience. Mm-hmm. He was a bit of uh, his exchange regarding foreign policy and Ukraine. Mr. Ramaswamy, you would not support an increase of funding to Ukraine? I would not. And I think that this is disastrous, that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border when we should use those same military resources to prevent across the invasion of our own southern border here in the United States. So you the reality make America is, less safe. You have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know, let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change oh, agenda whoa, 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 is a hoax. Hold on. I've had enough. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, what's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here, was Barack Obama. And I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing on stage tonight. It got pretty heated, John. Did Ramaswamy hold his own or was he exposed? No, I think it, it might have backfired a little bit because uh, when they all pile on like that, he, he gets the center of attention. And the key thing in a debate when you have eight people like that is to have attention. And uh, he had a point of view that's different than the others. But still, you know, they're all it, it's Donald Trump. What's going on right now in the United States? It, Trump is sucking the oxygen away from these opponents because he's dealing with Joe Biden trying to put him in jail rather than lose an election to him. So these other candidates, Mm -hmm. when they're when they're sniping at each other, it really doesn't matter to the average Republican. The average Republican is saying the country's on the wrong track. Sixty seven percent of all the voters see that almost two thirds are saying that the economy is on the wrong track. The majority say we're in a recession. Eighty three percent say they've been negatively impacted by inflation. And they're saying when Trump was Mm -hmm. president, these problems were solved. We were paying $2 a gallon for gas. I wasn't worried about my heating bills going up. I could afford to buy a new home. Before I turn to Trump, give me, a, uh, give me your best uh, take on the polling vis-a-vis Ukraine. For some reason, mm-hmm. Ukraine was a big topic of conversation the other night. And obviously, uh, the Biden administration is throwing hundreds of billions of dollars mm-hmm. at the country. How is it polling among Americans at this point? Oh, right. Well, first of all, right now, people think this war needs to end. Uh, they, they need, you know, we need peace. They don't like what Russia's doing as an aggressor. But I, I also do work in Eastern Europe where I, where I have worked for democracies and NATO allies over there. And they're afraid that the Russians may go into their country. But they're also afraid that Joe Biden's too weak to back them up. And what's gone on with American foreign mm. policies ever since Biden surrendered Afghanistan, uh, it's been a signal to our enemies that, you know, we're not going to stop them. When Trump was president, 
you know, we, we basically, Putin wouldn't go into, uh, wouldn't go into Ukraine. He was afraid because Donald Trump, yeah. you know, was somebody who was going to stand up. And, and so the Ukrainian issue right now is, is a problem because Biden's still president. He's very weak and Americans are concerned that he's not going to stand up for, uh, freedom and democracy. And so he's sending them money and people aren't sure how it's being spent. But the war, the tragedy of that war is still going on. John, you mentioned a moment ago Trump was the centerpiece of that debate, even though he wasn't there. Here's a bit of the back and forth uh, and whether Trump would have their support if nominated. Watch. Look, here's the here's the bottom line. Someone's got to stop normalizing this conduct. Okay. now and now whether or not whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of president of the United States. We have to look at the fact that three quarters of Americans don't want a rematch between Trump and Biden. And we have to face the fact that Trump is the most disliked politician in America. We can't win a general election that way. Here's the thing. This election (laughs) is not about January 6th of 2021. It's about January 20th of 2025, when the next president is going to take office. John, is any of this having an impact? I mean, Trump is at 52 percent in some of the latest polls. And I know you have that new one out where he's even higher. Right. right. And, and what the difference is, see, right now, you know, the, the voters are looking at this and they're they're, they're afraid because 62 percent agree that if Biden can do this to Donald Trump, he could prosecute any of his political opponents. That's a poll that we took in June. And, uh, you know, you got 58 percent saying they're concerned that if 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 they can weaponize the DOJ with the FBI and the IRS, they'll actually go after any American citizen. So there's a real fear of of basically an overreach uh, by Biden and his administration that in order to win an election and stop a political opponent that could beat him, that you know, basically they're undermining democracy in the United States. They're denying people civil rights. And it it extends to remember when the, you know, the Biden FBI was investigating Catholics because they were going to, they were going to mass, et cetera, going to Latin mass. And then they were investigating parents uh, that were concerned about what's going on in their schools. So, so there's a, there's something going on in the United States right now where they're looking at Joe Biden and saying he's going too far. And they're seeing the stories of corruption where allegedly they took tens of millions of dollars from foreign countries. And and people are saying our government's corrupt. Our system is broken. And we've got a president who's just gone too far and he's too weak and he's not successful. So uh, so I, th- I think, you know, people are looking at this and saying it's 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 there's something really wrong here. And that's why Donald Trump's still in the polls, though. That's why he's going on. Yeah. What's shaping up to be the big news of the week is President Trump turning himself in to these authorities Mm -hmm. in Georgia. Uh, I figured he'd use Thursday because it followed the debate. He sucks all the oxygen out of the room and the news cycle. Um, He's being, uh, as you know, charged with uh, attempting to overturn the 2020 election. My question is this. What impact are these indictments having on Trump's candidacy? Um, it's, it's helping them because it's exposing the political opposition. So, I mean, I worked in last year for, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel. 
And he had mm-hmm. similar, not similar, but he had corruption charges against him. And what, yeah. you know, the whole media in Israel was against him. What the Netanyahu campaign did was they live streamed the corruption trial. And the whole thing fell apart. It was exposed as a political uh, a political prosecution. Donald Trump's, uh, tonight, Donald Trump's being filmed and videoed when he's before this judge, when he's being arraigned by D.A. Willis uh, in Fulton County. And I think Americans are, gonna, are appalled by it because they want to vote in the election. We want to have a real campaign to talk about things that are affecting people, whether it's the economy, inflation, national security, crime, immigration. They want to discuss those issues. Mm-hmm. And right now they're being exposed with uh, this, this basically political prosecution of Donald Trump because he's leading Joe Biden in the polls. And uh, people, well, are, are, it's it, too much. They're being, well, it's too, and this, too much. And, and, and John, this uh, this Fulton County made for television event could backfire on them. Uh, you know, their 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 lead actor here is unpredictable. But according to a recent Reuters poll, and this is a question I know a lot of people have: if the president is convicted of the crime, never mind whether it's uh, you know illicit uh, charge or not, if he is convicted. 52 percent of Republicans say, according to a Reuters poll, they would not vote for President Trump. What is your polling telling you? Uh, Well, it's the backlash is working among Republicans. That's why he's still going ahead. I mean, that Reuters, you know, I don't like the way they frame their question, because the reality of this is most voters see this as Joe Biden is trying to stop his political opponent from uh, beating him in the the election next November. So, uh, so right now, uh, it's a dangerous time in American history because we've got a weaponized Department of Justice. You have uh, a sitting president who's trying to cover up his corruption by indicting his political opponent and trying to get him convicted. I mean, those 1870 laws that Jack Smith is prosecuting under, one has a 20-year prison term. Another one has the death penalty. I mean, this is bizarre. This is, this is you know, the kind of kind of things that go on in banana republics, not the United States of America. I want to shift gears to abortion rights, which has become a hot topic uh, and certainly was during this debate. Watch this. We need to stop demonizing this issue. This is talking about the fact that unelected justices didn't need to decide something this personal because it's personal for every woman and man. Now it's been put in the hands of the people. That's great. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say it will take 60 Senate votes. It will take a majority of the House. So in order to do that, let's find consensus. John, your thoughts on where this abortion issues is developing within the GOP since Roe was overturned. And what of Nikki Haley's point that a federal ban is irrelevant without the votes in the Senate? And why is it a federal issue when the feds returned it to the states? Well, if you look at whether people consider themselves pro-life or pro-abortion, when you look at the, the longest span of time back in the 90s, five to three, most voters would tell us that they were pro-choice. Now, because of the sonogram generation moving into the electorate, where they realize life it, it begins at, at some point way before abortion, you know, is banned illegal. And, and a lot of states, they have, mm-hmm. you know, abortion up until the ninth month. Um, they, I think most Americans were very happy that 
uh, President Trump's Supreme Court justices allowed it to go back to the states, and a lot of states have moved the laws to protect life. So the Republican Party is a pro-life party. Uh, the Democrat Party is becoming a you know abortion on demand up until the ninth month party, and they're you know they're out of sync with American public opinion. So I think uh, Republicans who basically say we need to advance the cause of life, we need to say human life has value. Uh, that's working in the in, in in the electorate right now, and that's why the Republicans have control of Congress, at least the House, and could have control of the Senate after the next election. Before we run out of time, President Trump opted out of the debate in Milwaukee, but he chose to appear with Tucker Carlson for a forty-minute conversation on uh, on X or Twitter. Um, here's my question: Was that a smart move on Trump's part? from a messaging standpoint, to, you know, grab this audience out in, in, you know, online or on their phones? And was he able to get more across to a public outside of the debate environment in this case? Um, I think it was the right move because, you know, to go through the stress of a debate and have the adrenaline moving and then the next day go get a rain before a Soros district attorney that has ties to Joe Biden Mm. is the next day. That's a lot of stress. And uh, he just, yeah. you know, he's very strong. He accepts it. You know, he, he's, he goes through this with, the, you know, dignity. And, you know, they're making him a sympathetic figure. He could end up being the Nelson Mandela of America. This is like crazy. And uh, um, so for him to have not appeared in the debate and do the counter program with Tucker Carlson, which as, as of last report that I saw, there's over 250 million views of that interview. Uh, which is astounding mm-hmm. for the internet. So, uh, so I think I think he he did the right thing in terms of, you know, he, he's he's got a bigger challenge. We got to beat Joe Biden. That's that's the most important thing that Donald Trump can do for the next election, and that's what he's focused on. Mm-hmm. And that debate seems to have been a, a you know a, a missed opportunity for the Republicans because if they don't stand up for him and his right to run as the opposition candidate. None of them are going to, you know, be successful because right now the Republican Party is facing an existential threat from the Democrats because if they have their their, you know, if they have their way, they will use the justice system, they will use the FBI, they will use the IRS to defeat their political opponents, and we will have lost the free and fair democracy in the United States and free and fair elections. So. Uh, you know, this is an important time in our history. John McLaughlin of McLaughlin and Associates and President Trump's pollster. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. As regular viewers know, we have been covering the ongoing saga involving the cause of Archbishop Fulton Sheen for decades. In full disclosure, I was a member of the original foundation that moved his cause for sainthood over 20 years ago. In 2019, after three years of legal battles, the Archdiocese of New York finally released the late televangelist remains to his home diocese in Peoria, allowing his cause to continue and proceed. However, a bankruptcy process in the Diocese of Rochester, New York, where Sheen once served as bishop, provided yet another roadblock to the advancement of the cause. Joining me now with an update on the status of the Sheen cause for sainthood is the executive director of the Archbishop Fulton Sheen Foundation, Monsignor Jason Gray. He joins us from the Sheen Museum in Peoria. Thank you so much for being here, Monsignor. As I mentioned before, the Diocese of Peoria 
it finally received Archbishop Sheen's remains in 2019. That seemed to resolve the last obstacle to the cause. Then weeks before he was to be beatified, the cause was halted. Please explain to viewers how the financial crisis in Rochester had put a halt to the Sheen cause. Sure. And that does take us back four years. It's hard to imagine that much time has passed. But in 2019, it was uh, in July that the miracle itself was approved by Pope Francis. And so we were ready to go. Uh, we had actually been um, privately, we had been negotiating a uh, date of September 20th, 2019 for his beatification. That would have been Sheen's 100th anniversary of priesthood ordination. But when the it wasn't just the bankruptcy in New York, but it was also uh, in uh, in uh, Rochester, but it was also the fact that there had been a waiver of the statute of limitations. It really was not known at the time whether there would be new allegations of which we really knew nothing. Um, so there was a concern mm -hmm. that something might come forward. And so out of an abundance of caution, the Holy See was hesitant. Uh, we also uh, received some documents that uh, it raised a question as to whether or not Archbishop Sheen had uh, handled any abuse cases improperly. And we got a hold of those documents. Yeah. We, we researched them carefully. And we actually, from Peoria, we went to the Congregation of Saints and the Secretary of State in Rome and made a presentation to prove to them without any any doubt that Sheen did handle those cases correctly. Uh, he had uh, one case yeah. of a, an abuser he got out of ministry and a second case of a priest who wanted back into ministry and Sheen would not assign him. Uh, he was assigned by the next Bishop of Rochester, but Sheen himself uh, did not did not assign anyone uh, who had been an abuser. So mm -hmm. we proved that to Rome and Rome was actually satisfied with that. And with that, the delayed September date now became a December date. So then we were up to December 22nd, 2019, mm -hmm. and that was public. So we had announced that as a date for beatification. Yep. But there was still at the same time uh, the concern over the investigation the state of New York was going to do into all the dioceses in New York. The attorney general's report was just uh, being undertaken. And so out of an abundance of caution, not knowing what else might come forward, uh, it was just considered more prudent to suspend the cause at the time. Well, but but now, uh, Monsignor, that those bankruptcy proceedings in Rochester are really wrapping up, what is they the are. status now and how might things proceed from here? I mean, it seems like the obstacles, at least the, the, the worries and concerns about the unknown are now known. It's true. That's true. The uh, when the window closed for for reporting uh, cases of abuse, the statute of limitations waiver ended and the bankruptcy filing is nearing its completion. So we actually employed a law firm in New York that works with the different dioceses in the state. And we actually did a thorough review of every case that had been presented. And we were able to demonstrate that no case had been brought forward that in any way impugned Sheen. Uh, I think it's safe to say mm -hmm. that I don't think any cause for beatification has been subjected to more scrutiny than Archbishop Sheen, both ecclesiastically and civilly. And in all of this, not only has nothing been found to impugn Sheen, but I think his heroic virtues have been confirmed. As I would like to say, Sheen is clean, and we can prove that. Um, so we're, we're <laughs> like that. confident that, about Yeah, You yeah, should do up those T-shirts and sell them at the museum. Sheen is <laughs> clean. Free the cause. So, That's what I'm going to start. See. That's going to be my banner here. The, throughout this process, Monsignor, um, have there been... Uh, any legitimate claims or accusations against the late Archbishop Sheen that would further delay no. his cause for saying? Yeah, in no, your, there, there have uh, not. In your study. 
Yeah, there have not. And we're, we're able to disprove any any questions about anything that would even be alleged. Um, so we're able to make that clear. And in fact, in September of 2022, um, then a group from Peoria, we went over again just to present these renewed findings and uh, the research that had been done through the law firm. And so we actually met with Cardinal Samararo and Saints. We met with Cardinal Perlin, Secretary of State, and presented all this material. Mm -hmm. Rome was actually very clear that there's no problem in the Holy See. Uh, with this cause. The concerns have been raised on the, the other side of the pond. It's um, uh -huh. uh, members of the U.S. hierarchy. Yeah. And so out of just concern and abundance of caution, there's just hesitation until mm -hmm. we feel like there's there's no doubts remaining. But uh, if it takes the attorney well, general's I, I, report to, to demonstrate what we already know, what, we, what we've already proven, yeah. uh, we want to go forward with the unanimous support of the entire bishops conference. And, and I'm sure that we'll get there. Well, I know I know there were some archbishops who were concerned, and it, it does connect to many of the things we're discussing, the bankruptcy proceedings and the, 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 the possibility of some connection to abuse here. So they put this on hold. But tell us about the other part of this, which is um, at this point, Sheen already has the miracle in place. I mean, it's already been approved. So is that's, there any reason— from where you stand to hold up this cause and to stop him from being at least beatified at this point? It, it's really just a question of prudence. And uh, if, if, like I mentioned, the attorney general in New York has not released a report yet, uh, we know what's what the, has been reported. So we're confident that that's also going to vindicate Sheen. If we need to wait for that, mm -hmm. then um, it's we I'd like to go forward with uh, that unanimous support of all the bishops, which I'm sure we will have. And this will be the opportunity to beatify the first American born bishop uh, in the United States, as well as America's bishop, as he would have been called uh, back in the day when he was on television. Uh, Monsignor, uh, before I let you go, assuming these matters are settled, do you have any plans, do the foundation have any plans of bringing these findings before the entire body of bishops and getting them to just give it a final amen uh, so that it has their support when you go back to Rome? If there are any questions, we when we have all the documentation and we have all the proof. So if there's anything that we need to demonstrate, these are kind of sad things. And it's uh, it's just a, it's a very difficult time in the church um, to deal with cases of abuse. So I know it's not something that I think we want to dwell on. But if uh, if there is need for any clarity, we can offer it. We've we've got everything that, that would be necessary to demonstrate uh, Sheen's heroic virtue without a doubt. Yeah. Well, we knew many of these things years ago that, you know, I know there were the allegations that, oh, there was an abuser in Rochester. But it turns out he 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 was Sheen pulled him out of ministry. It was the yeah. successor that returned him to it. So, um, as you said earlier, Monsignor, and I love the slogan, Sheen is clean. That's I right. love that. That's so right. we will leave it there. Please, uh, Monsignor Gray, keep us updated on this cause. We obviously want to see this go to the next level. And I know many of the people who watch not only our program, but EWTN, they continue to watch Archbishop Sheen. And he was so prophetic on so many fronts. Um, it would be a tragedy if this cause didn't move forward, given that no, and I'm he's met all I'm the I'm sure that it will. And uh, Sheen is someone that the church needs, I think, more today ever than ever. And so we look forward to having him beatified, which I know will happen. I'm confident of that. And we can say, God love you, as okay. Sheen would, himself would always say. <laughs> uh, I'll erase the chalkboard when you're done. For the latest on the Archbishop Sheen Foundation and the Servant of God, Fulton Sheen's Cause for Canonization, visit CelebrateSheen.com. Thank you, Monsignor. Excellent. Thank you. 
The nation of Armenia became the first country in history to have established Christianity as its official religion. Despite this long history, the Armenian people have been subjected to persecution, most notably during the Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Turks during the First World War. Now, since December of last year, Azerbaijan has blocked Artsakh, which is an Armenian republic, attempting to drive the people out of their homeland. We reported on this back in July, here tonight with an update on the blockade and the damage it's causing the Christian community in the region, is special advisor to the Philos Foundation and Armenian affairs expert, Simon Riskala. Thank you so much for being here, Simon. Um, we had Bishop uh, Mikhail Muradian uh, on uh, in July, and he painted a very stark picture of the plight of Armenian Christians due to this blockade. One month later, where do we stand? Although there has been, uh, thanks to you and others who have brought attention to this issue, there has been more media attention, but not certainly not enough. And in terms of the situation for the Armenian Christians in Artsakh and the Nagorno-Karabakh, things are getting they're more and more dire. Earlier this week, there were reports that the blockade might be easing due to the movement of a few Armenians across that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh blockade zone. Is this an indication that a deal is on the horizon? What are the negotiations? Are there negotiations going on at this point? Certainly the Azeris want the perception that there's an easing of the blockade. And the way that that perception is being perpetuated mm. is that, for example, college students who have dual citizenship with Russia, Russian passports, Russia is, you know, friendlier and friendlier with Azerbaijan, are permitted to leave mm. Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh. But that's a one-way exit ticket. They won't be able to come back. Uh, and so it looks wow. like, yeah, t yeah. So it looks like, oh, look, see, there's people that are there's movement happening, but that is more a PR stunt than anything else. If the blockade's allowed to continue, w t tell us what the immediate result might be. I mean, there has been talk. You mentioned it earlier that a famine might ensue. Uh, when Bishop uh, Murdian was here, uh, he spoke of children essentially being starved. Yeah, I mean, that is still happening and it's only increasing in its in its drama in the in the coming weeks. Uh, we we have reports of, for example, I think it was last week, a 40 year old who died of starvation and that was tweeted out um, the, mm. the, the lack of fuel. So the lack of transport is very real. The reports of miscarriages because ambulances don't have the fuel to go take take this woman, take the women to get help. Uh, so it's, it's, mm. it, 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 it's dramatic. It, it sounds dramatic because it actually is dramatic. There are reports uh, of Azerbaijani troops shooting at Armenian outposts along the border. Uh, also, I, I read this week, uh, Armenian college students, and you mentioned this a moment ago, leaving the region because the schools in Artsakh are not reopening in the fall term. How devastating is that? And are there any chances that these schools and universities might reopen? I, I mean, I don't know how they possibly could. I think the question is how. For school children, first, how do you get there if there's no fuel? Uh, the weather conditions, mm. depending on the season, they're hungry. They're traumatized from living under a, a blockade for eight months. I mean, how do you how do you go to school 
in those conditions, the teachers are hungry. The whatever wheat and vegetables and fruit have been planted. I mean, they're the Aziris are shooting at farmers. So even though in the springtime there was, you know, farming that happened, how do you get the right. food to the people with without the ability to transport and the farmers being scared because they're being shot at? Simone, what is the political answer here? I mean, I got a lot of letters after we had the bishop on uh, the of the Armenian eparchy here in the United States. He was, uh, People want to know, what can we do? I mean, who politically should we be leaning on, both as the United States and as private citizens? Yeah, I definitely think that to continue to put pressure on the Biden administration to withhold the waiver for Section 907, the Freedom Support Act, um, continue to be strong in 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 making demands that we simply cannot give Azerbaijan American money if they continue to be aggressive towards Armenians. And there are weekly shootings. And last week, mm-hmm. I mean, this is reported every week, an Armenian soldier, soldier died. And of course, what they would love is for Armenian soldiers to shoot back. And that's a pretext for war. But we, Armenians mm. won't because... We want to avoid war. So we just yeah. have to keep dealing well, with this. Well, this is an, there. And, and you mentioned you mentioned that provision. That is the military assistance program, which the United States gives funds to Azerbaijan. Um, now, this is apparently being slow walked because uh, the Biden administration is concerned of the ethnic cleansing, potential genocide here. Uh, is there any truth that Washington is getting the message? We have yet to see it. I mean, I have the same question as you do, Raymond. I have the same exact question. There's all these meetings that are happening. We hear, you know, in in Europe, there's, you know, peace treaties trying to be brokered by the UN, Russia, the United States. But but to what end? Where are these meetings going? When when will it actually end? I'm very curious to see that. Well, the United States should at the very least demand that that blockade stop. I mean, we can't withhold, you know, we send hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine, uh, you know, to try to protect it. Uh, Here are fellow Christians dying uh, in a region where they're being starved for eight months. Nobody says or does anything. So it is kind of infuriating. Uh, What about the Armenian allies in the region? Well, it doesn't seem that Armenia does have many allies, which is why Mm. U.S support is is so crucial um we don't really have any reliable neighbors or allies so there, well there I were reports i read reports of i i just read reports and correct me if i'm wrong that india um there were warming relations between india and armenia is that true could that provide yes, a buffer that is, that is true that is true and it it's it's again um there's still more information that needs yet to be known about that, but that is that hmm. uh, friendly relationship seems to be emerging because of because of course hmm. India wants to keep checks on Pakistan, who you know has an alliance with Turkey and Azerbaijan. So right. you know there's there's like a tension there. Um, so yes, that is true, but we don't have that much information about it. But certainly. The possibility yeah. for Armenia to to receive weapons, uh, military aid and weapons from mm. India is is a positive thing. 
Before we go, there's a prayer vigil, I know, um, uh, against to pray against this Armenian Christian persecution. Uh, that's happening on Friday, August 25th. What can you tell us about that? How can people join? Yes, please go to spiritualdirection.com forward slash Armenia. Please sign up for this prayer vigil. We really do understand that this is also at the heart a spiritual battle um, against people who will not uh, give up their Christianity, their Christian faith, or their right to freedom and self-determination in their ancient homeland. So uh, Mm. please, please join me and Dan and Stephanie Burke at the Avila Foundation, um, for, and, and Chris Check from Catholic Answers and Gia Chacon from For the Martyrs and, and all, all those in the uh, Avila family as we really like, we're going to pray rosary, Divine Mercy Chaplet, Bishop Mikhail will be there to, to lead prayers in Armenian from St. Gregory of Narek, who's a, a doctor of the Catholic Church, uh, number 36. Yeah. And, um, and so we, we really know that perhaps you know, the, the greatest force, and I, and I know you know that John Paul II believed this and, and all the saints, mm-hmm. that the true power is in spiritual and cultural power. So we yeah. really want to storm storm the gates of heaven with our prayers for the Armenian people, because mm-hmm. as, as we discussed, this is truly a, a mass famine, ethnic cleansing, and a genocidal uh, aim uh, against mm-hmm. the Armenian Christians. So please join us for that prayer vigil. The Hosanna app yeah. is starting at Novena you know, on the same day, nine days of prayer. Simone Rizcala, we will leave it there, but uh, I think you're so right when you mentioned John Paul II. Uh, he, you know, he and Maggie Thatcher and, and uh, President Reagan, they understood that you had to take both policy action in the temporal realm as well as spiritual action simultaneously. I worry that in this situation, there is no policy action. There's nothing clear and concrete. That needs to be remedied. We need to get the political leaders focused on it, and the activists need to focus on what they really want here. But at the least, this blockade has to stop, and maybe that has to be the message. For more information about the prayer vigil against this Armenian Christian persecution, visit spiritualdirection.com forward slash Armenia for more details. To keep up on what's happening on the ground there, visit philosproject.org forward slash Armenia. Thank you again, Simone. Thank you. My next guest is an actress, a wife, and mother of three. She's a former Miss USA winner and is now a successful businesswoman, focusing on women's health and wellness. She's the founder of the lifestyle platform Reshape, and the author of a brand new book, Reshape Your Life. Don't settle because you are worth it. I sat down with her earlier this week to talk about it. Here's my exclusive interview with Allie Landry. Allie, thanks for being here. Uh, Before we get to the book, I have to start. Uh, You're a fellow Louisianian um, uh, at the other L.A. Uh, Now, I grew up in New Orleans, (laughs) but you grew up in Cajun country. Tell me about how that shaped the woman you've become your dad worked in the oil fields. I know your mom he did. was your first inspiration, a bit of an entrepreneur. 
Yes. You know, well, first of all, you know, I, I have such a connection to my roots. I have a beautiful, large Catholic family. There's 10 children on my dad's side, eight on my mom's side. Everybody lives on two big patches of land. I call it one-stop shopping. I just park the car, one, one, one home, and then I just go house to house to visit everyone. And opening the book, I mean, honestly, the first two chapters is truly a love letter to Louisiana, to the, I get, I get emotional, to the community that raised me, to all the strong women that I had around me. Um, and I think I appreciate it even more now that I'm away from it all. So to this day, I honestly still consider myself, you know, just a small town girl. Hmm. What, what role did your Catholic faith play uh, in your life when you were growing up? I know it is such a, you know, uh, for, for Louisianians, it's such a part of our lived and daily existence in communal life. It really is. It's a part. I'll tell you this. I feel like everybody in our area in southwest Louisiana is Catholic. So I honestly think that it was something I took for granted. And, hmm. you know, of course, there was went to church every Sunday and I went to a Catholic school and was taught by nuns. And I had, you know, my faith as that foundation. But it was not until I was an adult that I really evaluated my life and recommitted to my faith in the most profound way. And I'm really, um, God, when I did that, God showed up in my life um, in a completely different way and really walked alongside me in the journey. Allie, the new book, uh, Reshape Your Life, it's really all about transformation. Uh, Now, you've had so much success in your life, uh, Miss USA, your acting, uh, but you've also experienced loss and tragedy. And you write in the book, when life turns upside down, you can feel dizzy and off balance like you're falling. What I found is that it helps to tether yourself to what you know to be true in your core. For me, that's my faith. I began to pray like never before. Only God could comfort me and give me the peace and healing I so desired and transform transform my heart. God was present for me. It has been the only time in my life when I heard God's voice so clearly, and I think it is because I was so fully dependent on him. Tell us about that time and how important it is in life to be tethered to truth. You know, really the book is all about reshapes, right? I feel for me, I never want to see a woman settle for less than what she deserves, right? And the book really helps you identify areas in your life that just are not serving you. And I share with you the tools to help you get to the other side and really create those true and lasting reshapes. But at the core of it all, at the core of it all, honestly, is my faith. And It's when, you know, there were times, there have been many reshapes, but, you know, I've had some around betrayal um, and love, right, Mm -hmm. and tragedy and loss where they brought me to my knees and I did not have the answers. And I honestly had to completely surrender, surrender my own will. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. do life the way I wanted to do it. I had to, because I felt so helpless in those moments that I had to Mm -hmm. give it, I had to honestly give it to God. And when I did that, that's when I heard, I was in so much pain, right? But that's when I heard his voice so clearly. And that's when the transformation started to happen within myself. I was able to sit Mm. in that quiet, 
sit in that pain and just let, and like, I was like, God, listen, I've made many mistakes in my life. I can't make any more. Or I, I have to be able to move through this with happiness and joy and positivity. I can't have resentment. I can't feel anger. Like I want the best life for myself, but your plan is way bigger than mine. So just take, hold my hand and take me through. And I get chills because mm-hmm. You know, I don't get an opportunity to speak about that very often. And so I do it in the book and I'm so happy we get to talk about this here because that is where it was my relationship with God and and my faith that really brought me through the toughest times. If I didn't have that, I don't know if I could have got through, I would say, in the miraculous way that I did. Ali, you also talk about forgiveness and uh, not only forgiveness for others, but forgiving ourselves for past mistakes. What would you say to those struggling with their past and the things that they've or choices they've made in their past? You know, I look at I even look at my own life and I think, you know, I definitely went to the wayside. I've definitely made bad choices. I've definitely made mistakes. But I have to stay, say now, standing where I'm standing, I, it's, mm-hmm. I, I embrace those times and I look at them as part of the fabric of my life. It was wonderful learning experiences because I allowed them to be. Um, mm-hmm. And I think forgiveness is so important. I had a really hard understanding, time understanding what that was, especially when someone betrayed me and I had to learn to move forward with forgiveness. I honestly thought that forgiving would mean that I'm saying, like, that's okay what you did to me. Like, I'm, I'm good with that. But mm-hmm. that's not what it was. Forgiving, forgiving that person allowed me to move forward, right? It allowed me not to carry anything forward in my life because they weren't worrying about it. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It actually took me a while to, like, figure it out and, and for that concept to land on me. Um, but again, like I really try to walk the reader through as best I can through my personal experiences and give them those tools of how to kind of maneuver through these situations in their own lives. The book, it deals really with the health of the mind, the body, the heart and the soul. Uh, after years yeah. of working in Hollywood, acting and, and, you know, landing your dream job of a talk show host, your health and wellness took a sharp downturn. What happened? Yeah. And and how did you come upon this idea of reshape? Yeah, that's honestly where it all started, like the concept of reshape. I was on, you know, a daily talk show. I was on Fox. It was a panel. I was, you know, so excited. Uh, but that kind of schedule was really tough. You know, it's up at five, live at nine. Uh, I thought by the time I got off at 10, I was going to get in some exercise. I was going to go to the grocery store, cook this dinner, pick up the kit, you know, have this whole great day. In reality, I would get home exhausted. I would climb back into bed. I, the best way I could describe it. And I think women, I was in my mid forties at the time. I felt off. I felt sick maybe, but not sick enough to go to the doctor, right? Just didn't feel myself. Mm. And so I actually went to a naturopathic doctor and did my first full blood panel And I had so many aha moments and really saw where I was off. I was experiencing, you know, poor digestion, poor sleep, chronic pain issues, um, 
mild depression. I mean, low energy. I felt like I was living half a life. And once I started making some adjustments with the guidance of the naturopathic doctor and many others that came into place after that, I experienced that next level of health. But I was about to throw in the mm-hmm. towel. You know, my girlfriends, when I asked them, they're like, yeah, Allie, like, we're getting older. That's what happens. And for me, that just didn't sit well. I was like, I'm 40 something years young. Like I have this great life in front of me. I want it to be vibrant and amazing and I want more. And so I just dug Mm -hmm. in and did the work. And uh, that's part of that, what I share, you know, because I know it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. You've spoken and written about your 17 year marriage to uh, film director Alejandro Monteverde. Of course, people will be very familiar with his work, Little Boy and and Bella and so many other great films. Uh, You have three children together. Tell me about the importance of that relationship, how it changed your life. You know, I was coming off of a betrayal that we spoke about earlier, and that's when I Mm -hmm. completely surrendered my my life, my relationship mostly to God. I was just like, I've made bad choices. I, I, I was very specific about what I wanted in a partner. Very, very specific. One of them was I wanted them to be equally yoked. I prayed for him in great detail. At the time I was doing, uh, reading Purpose Driven Life uh, by Rick Warren, and I was doing the workbook, and that was like such therapy for me. And we met at a theology class. Alejandro and I met at a, at a theology class. Hmm. We actually, um, I, I honestly, that we were both writing in a diary at the same time. And I, I truly feel with everything in my heart that God delivered him to me. He delivered this man to me. And we do not have a perfect marriage by all means. I don't want people to think that. But at the end of the day, hmm. you know, he is the leader of our family. He keeps us so close to God and reminds us like daily gratitude, appreciation, like always looking to him um, Mm -hmm. for all of our blessings. Right. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I just have utmost respect for him, even with his projects that he's doing. Like you mentioned, he has a new one that's coming out. We're actually going to Rome to show it to the Pope, which I'm so excited on Sunday. Um, And just the projects he puts out in the world are so hopeful and so beautiful and just raises humanity. Um, I mean, it's an mm. honor to be married to him. And I, I take zero credit, zero, zero, zero. Honestly, I went to God in that moment, and that was part of that reshape, and that, that was the result. As I mentioned earlier, alluded to, um, you have not been untouched by tragedy in you and Alejandro. In, in 2015, yeah. and you devote an entire chapter in the book to this, um, the reshape through pain. You and Alejandro received a call that your father-in-law, Alejandro's dad and his brother, were kidnapped near their hometown in Mexico. And sadly, they were both killed. And you write in the book, the grief and the pain felt like we were carrying a building on our shoulders. It was the greatest weight I ever experienced, pulling me down all the time. Losing them changed everything. I was not the same person. In tragedy, faith is truly put to the test. Honestly, that was the most difficult thing in all of this for me. Suffering had sent me to my knees in prayer so many times, and now it was hard to pray. I initially felt betrayed by God. I tried and tried, but I could not understand. Uh, and you go on to, st- to mention how Jesus said from the cross, why have you forsaken me? Um, uh, how did you and Alejandro deal with this horrible tragedy? And, and talk to me you know, a little bit about how fa- your faith was challenged and how you overcame that. You know, during that time, it's so hard, like to, you know, you're in that space and I'm hearing it again. And 
during that time, like to lose one person in that way is inconceivable. Mm-hmm. But to lose two, you have no idea how to even mourn. Like it, it, you, as a human being to process that is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And we were really struggling. And my father-in-law was such a devout man. It's so beautiful. Honestly, when they took him, I thought they would fall in love with him and they were gonna, they would return him. Like I, I didn't think it was going to end the way it did. So when we lost him, um, we were confused. We were angry with God because he took a good one. And um, we, we, we met with many priests, many spiritual advisors. I mean, we did so much work on ourselves just try to understand. And it's so funny. I was hosting a Catholic conference and Alejandro wasn't even open to even sit in the audience. He stayed up in the room. He was with me. And Father Michael mm-hmm. Gately got up and he was talking about his book, 33 Days to Morning Glory. And he was talking about Mary and the son and bringing us back to Jesus and union. And I don't know what happened in that moment. Again, I have chills. I knew that I needed Alejandro to talk to her talk to Father Michael Gately. And I was thinking, Mary is the way. I've never had a devotion to Mary. Like, I really didn't. I would just go straight to the big man. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I brought them together. He shared with us the book. We started doing the book, 33 Days to Morning Glory. And honestly, Mary felt like a safe choice for us because we, it was too sensitive what we were feeling to go directly to God. Like, we just couldn't. So Mary, Mm. through that devotion, gently guided us back into union with her son. And that's when the healing began. And that's when the healing began after that, after doing that devotion. And now I feel like because of that tragedy, we really have changed the way we walk through this, this world. I mean, we definitely make different choices. We really try to be super present and in the moment, knowing that life is so short and could be taken away in an instant. Um, we really try daily to surrender, uh, our lives into God's will, you know, being in this entertainment business, it seems all, it seems very glamorous, but there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to finances and jobs. And sometimes jobs uh, are few and far between. And, you know, you're always sort of, it's all, it's always that balance. So, um, really putting our faith in God and he's always delivered. He really has. It's, it's, it's amazing. Mm. No, it's a great part of the book and, and, you know, worth reading. I think the, the journey is worth it for that chapter, though there are other commendable chapters, too. But uh, at the beginning of the first chapter, you use one of my favorite quotes from St. Catherine of Siena. Be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. What do you want yeah. readers to take, Allie, from um, Reshape Your Life? And what's the message that you want them to hold dearest as they, as they go through this? I mean, when you say that quote, I love it so much because often I feel like as we get older, we lose that fire, right? Those things that bring us ultimate joy because we get older and life starts to happen and we focus on the bills and the jobs and the kids and everything. But we have Mm -hmm. to remember those things that set our souls on fire, right? In my husband's movie, um, there's a quote there that says, you can either serve your passion or you can serve your weakness, not both. So I truly believe in serving the passion, right? And and really that is, that pretty much describes everything that the book is about. Like really 
you know, not settling for a half life. Like we have one life, one life. And I just want us all to really try our best to make it a masterpiece. I love it. Allie Landry, thank you for being here. And by the way, your husband's movie, uh, uh, the Mother Cabrini film is incredible, which I, you know, I've seen I've seen bits and pieces of it, not the entire film. Oh but what I've gosh. seen is, is pretty stellar. Um, reshape oh, your life. Don't you. settle because you are worth it by Allie Landry is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Allie, hope you'll come back sometime soon and come visit us in New Orleans. I would love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.